Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Battlefields Podcast, brought to you by The Epoch Times. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fink, the director of the Battlefields Project and the owner of The Havoc Journal, where we pride ourselves on being the voice of the veteran community. This week, we are bringing you Profiles in Havoc, stories from the men and women serving our nation on the battlefield and the home front. Many thanks to The Epoch Times for their generous and enduring support of America's military and first responders, as well as to our other sponsors, including the Havoc Journal, the Second Mission Foundation, and Veterans Repertory Theater. And now, the host of the Battlefields Podcast and Profiles in Havoc, Christopher Paul Meyer. This week, I spoke with Master Sergeant Jeff Dardia and Meg Kelvington about what vets should do to maintain their mind, body, and spirit. I actually think I phrased it, how should vets maintain their mind, body, and spirit, but you get the idea. It was a supposed to be kind of uh, that mind, body, spirit episode. Uh, we've been wanting to do an episode on health and fitness and veterans well-being for a while. We'd actually, uh, we were supposed to have Jeff on a couple months ago, I think. And he, uh, anyway, we, we, we couldn't get it together uh, that time, but uh, we did this week. So I, it's just, I'm not going to lie. It's a subject that kind of can weird me out sometimes. I think uh, just like any vet, you're, you're always kind of skittish about, I don't know, health and well-being stuff because you're like, you know, it's one of those things you don't want to pry too much into because then you start to analyze yourself and go, wait, what's wrong with me? Uh, so it's one of those that I I wasn't uh, super looking forward to, even though I knew we needed to talk about it and it was an important subject to cover ended up being a really, really interesting discussion. Both Meg and Jeff have really interesting, intricate uh, backstories. Their personal stories are, um, I, I wasn't even aware of them when when we booked them as guests. And uh, I'm not going to spoil them here, but they're worth listening to. As a result, I, I kind of got wrapped up in their personal things a bit. So we didn't cover... Uh, all the, the the full spectrum of health, fitness, well-being subjects that we could have. Um, to be fair, I'm not sure you can possibly cover any of them to the extent you need to in, in the span of an hour, but we did our best. And uh, if you just come out of this with nothing more than a wave top level understanding of the issue, uh, it, it, it's a hell of a wave top. There's a lot packed into that wave top, so it'll be well worth it. And uh, this is definitely an episode you want to check out the show notes um, because there's going to be a ton of linkable content there um, that is valuable for you uh, for your own general interest, but also to forward to people that you may know that may uh, benefit from some of these programs or you yourself. Anyway, this is going to be a fun one. I can't wait for you guys to hear what Jeff and Meg have to say. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the weekly havoc. Welcome to this episode of the weekly havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Jeff Dardia is a career Special Forces soldier. He is currently a Master Sergeant. He helps stand up and currently serves as the Operations Sergeant for 3rd Special Forces Groups. Man, that is harder to say than I thought. 3rd Special Forces Groups Human Performance and Wellness Program. Too many possessives in that, Jeff. I don't know. Uh, Master Sergeant Dardia is also the founder and program director for 3rd Special Forces Group's META, Medical Education Transition Advocacy Slash Awareness Transition Program. He has served in both Central Com- Command or CENTCOM and the U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM. And he has also been a liaison at the U.S. Embassy in Burkina Faso. He is also a Veterans Affairs Certified Recovery Care Coordinator and served as the Fort Bragg Wounded Warrior Battalion Liaison for SOCOM. He has also founded and directed the Special Operations Forces Health Initiative Program for Task Force Dagger Special Operations Foundation, where he created a pipeline that has directly assisted hundreds of wounded, ill, and injured SOF members and their families. Jeff, great to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me on. Humbled to be here. 
Well, listen, uh, as I said before, second time's a charm. We tried to get Jeff on earlier, and I was bummed we couldn't, and I'm glad he's back now. And a uh, little spoiler alert, I actually had to stop talking to Jeff before we started the episode because if he and I talked anymore, uh, I was going to get answers to all the questions that he was bringing up. And, and I was like, he's got a great story, and I can't wait to get into it with him. So really glad you're here and uh, glad I don't have to keep my ammo dry for much longer. Uh, Meg Kelvington is Meg. I just found this out about you, so I'm sorry. I have to lead with this. You are half of the first ever mother daughter graduates of West Point, which I just think was a super cool tidbit that I found out, um, and I think that's worth leading with. You then went on to fly. She went on to fly helicopters and planes deployed to Afghanistan. She now uses her army leadership experience to train others to be fit to serve while being a ranger wife and a mother to four young children. Uh, she, obviously, she grew up in an army family, and both her mother and father, I should mention, were West Point graduates. Um, she qualified as both a Black Hawk pilot and RC-12 guardrail airplane pilot. She was stationed at Hunter Army Airfield, flew over 200 combat hours. She then went on to 82nd Airborne Division and 1st Corps before leaving the Army to focus on her family and pursue coaching and mentoring. She's done work with Team Red, White, and Blue, uh, Wear Blue, Run to Remember, and led groups in her local church. She and her husband, Mike, as we said, have four children. Meg, thanks a million for being here. Thank you. Absolutely honored, and I'm just so excited to get to talk to you guys. Yeah, me too. This is an episode that uh, I... I, I just full disclosure, I was kind of cautious about, um, I think, and I, I don't want to speak for Charlie faint, the havoc journal owner who, uh, as a reminder to everyone listening is the reason that I get these great guests because Charlie's pipeline is very robust. <laughs> His networking ability is much better than mine, but Charlie's wanted to do this episode and, and have people on to talk about health ramifications for veterans. Uh, obviously this week's subject, how should vets maintain their mind, body, and spirit, um, those are all incredibly important subjects, but I was always a little cautious about it because it can get um, very niche, I thought, very quickly. And I think for a civilian population, it kind of – I think in the civilian mind, it seems to become an issue of the broken veteran, right? That the civilians don't have anything else to look at except Vietnam movies, and they have this myth of broken veterans, and that's all they see. So when they hear – oh, you're going to talk about health issues and veterans. Um, they're looking for the drama. They're looking for the story. They're looking for broken bodies, broken minds. And that kind of fits this paradigm that they have, this concept they have of what veterans are and how they get broken and the evil things that war does to us, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was important to me to have guests on that could show the reality behind this and be realistic about the struggles that vets face um, and also bust myths. So that's kind of my uh, implicit bias that I'm entering this with. So first, let's just define some terms. Um, I obviously threw out, I came up with the title of the episode, so maybe I'll go first and say that when I said mind, body, and spirit, why I thought those were the three things to focus on. Obviously, physical health is important. The mental aspect, I think, is universally acknowledged as being paramount because you need the focus, you need the discipline. But I wanted to throw the spirit in there because I think it's one of those things that is practiced but not preached very often. We don't often talk about the why, why we do things, um, not just the mental aspect, but but that spiritual aspect. And I don't necessarily mean religious, although it can mean that, but um, just what is that motivating factor that drives people to make the improvements that they need to make or maintain the health that they have. And I think it's one of those uncomfortable things that a lot of people do practice, um, especially in the soft community. You need to have that why. You need to have some spiritual grounding in one way, shape, or form. There needs to be something anchoring you, whether it's a belief in yourself, a belief in God, a belief in uh, the mission, whatever. Um, but it's one of those things that then doesn't get preached very often, and we focus on the mind and body, but we leave kind of the spirit out. So that was kind of where I was coming from with that. Uh, feel free to agree, disagree, punch holes in it as you see fit. Jeff, how do you like my definitions? Does that seem to fit, or is there something else I'm missing? Well, um, I'll just add that that goes along with uh, USOCOMS. 
preservation, force, and family pillars. Uh, I would add family in there as well, and they just add a new one, which is cognitive, right? But I think the cognitive kind of goes with the spiritual and the mind. So, um, but definitely, um, you have to define your why, right? Why you're doing what you're doing, and why would somebody put themselves through what we do? And most people would be like, I would never do that. Why do you do that, right? And it all comes down to, for me personally, was helping people and most of the people I work with. It comes down to the same thing. They want to make a difference. They want to help people and they want to make the world a better place, right? It, it sounds cliche, but uh, that was my reason. I, I don't like sitting on the sidelines and watching things go to crap around me. If I have the ability to respond, right? Responsibility uh, to do something and change that. So be the change. That was kind of my spiritual guidance for everything I've done in my career to put myself through that and to do it over and over again. So. And I want to get into your personal story in a little bit. Um, Meg, I want to bounce the mind, body, spirit thing off you though first and just uh, add, change, delete as you see fit. What do you think about that? So I am a Christian. That's where my spiritual faith lies. And as far as the, the spirit part, I will say hope is a big part of that. So wherever mm. someone's faith or spirit, call it religion, call it what you want, to me, by definition, they have to have that hope. They have to have hope either it's going to get better. They have to have hope in their brothers and sisters to the right and left of them. They have to have hope in the system that they're in. They have to have hope in the world. So the big word to me in all of that is hope. That can be forward thinking, uh, as Jeff said, to make it better for the future. It can also be looking in the past. Coming from an organization like the Army, we do things a lot of times because of our history, because we want to make those past generations proud. And to me, that all that is all in that world of spirit, of the spirit of the organization we're in, the spirit of the family unit we're in. And then it does, we can get into it later, but uh, to serve, again, as just to echo what Jeff said, service is a big part of that. And I'm a big word nerd. So if you get down and keep going back generations with serve, you actually get to family. And so I think a big part of all of this is being part of a broader family. And for veterans, that's huge. As someone that left the service and you have to redefine where you serve, uh, that all goes into your spiritual mindset. I love that, that, that those definitions. I love what you said. I think maybe now let's back up and talk about the question that might be on a lot of people's minds. What's wrong with veterans? Okay, so you need the mind, you need the body, you need the spirit. It's important to have hope. It's important to be part of this family and be involved in service. Uh, what are we trying to fix? Jeff, in your experience, what is – I know this is an unfair question because there's a million ways that – you know, veterans are different. Everyone's mileage varies when it comes to what issues they're dealing with. But writ large, what is wrong with veterans that we need to be paying attention to health in the mind, body, and spirit the way we are? I'll start with the mental, I guess, the mind part, right? So getting ripped out of an environment, you basically threw all your eggs into one basket to get into, and you tied your identity to that, right? So when you tie your identity to something, and all of a sudden you get wounded, ill, or injured, and get ripped out of that environment. Uh, you kind of lose your identity and lose your way and talk about hope, right? Uh, and when people lose those things, that's like the catalyst to get things going down the drain, right? And what we want to do is get people to have that hope, to have that clarity of mind to understand that they can overcome these things, but they have to be willing to do the work, right? They have to be willing to put one foot in front of the other to get up out of bed every day and to make change and to make their situation better. Uh, it, no one else is going to come to save you, right? Uh, you have to start with that and that community and the environment that you're in, it makes a huge difference on that, right? Uh, so what you don't want to do is find yourself going down that downward spiral and surrounding yourself with other people that are just like that and then getting caught up and going down the drain. So being self-aware, mindful of your situation of what's causing you to feel the way you are, whether it's psychologically, physiologically, or relationships, everything you're in, 
and then start working at each one of those things to better them and take away things that aren't helping your situation. I, I hope that puts some clarity in that one. That, that puts a lot of clarity in. It makes me, though, ask, and Meg, I'll ask you this, um, especially as someone that's separated early, um, as I did, uh, and I, I relate a lot to what you say, Jeff, about your identity being tied to your job. Um, Meg, you had a job that I think it's safe to say was enviable and that takes an awful lot to accomplish. That's a lot. That's a huge mountain to climb to get that job, much less to excel at it. Um, is a person more than their job? In in my view, absolutely. And I will tell you, I look at cloudy skies completely differently um, now than before I flew at 30,000 feet, but it's something that I teach our kids and I'm bringing into my coaching that even on a cloudy day, the sun is still risen and it is still, you may not see it, but the sunshine is still there and you have to have belief that when those clouds move away, the sun did rise that day and it will keep rising day after day. Now, from my view, um, my job was enviable. It was the coolest of the cool as far as I'm concerned. And yet I did not find my community there at all. I loved being a ranger spouse, being a ranger wife and those ladies. And I found community there. I found community in my church. I loved being around the older warrant officers. They were great teachers and mentors. However, I felt completely lost when I did get out of the Army. And I was confused by that. Because when I was in the Army, I didn't feel like one of the boys. And not, you know, I am (laughs) not sexual harassment-wise, none of that stuff. I just never quite fit in. And so when I got out of the Army, it was like, well, shoot, I didn't fit in when I was supposed to fit in on the team, and now I don't have a ready-made team. So yes, it did take a couple, quite a few years of soul-searching to find out quite where I was going to land. I am so blessed, though. I have a mom and dad, as you said, that were great role models for me. And I grew up in sports. And so, as you said, that's where Team Red, White, and Blue and Wear Blue came in to help me out. That I knew when I wanted to, there was always a group of people that I could find to go to the gym with, go for a run with. And so, I'm so thankful for organizations like that. Now, I will add it takes an invitation to participation. And I didn't coin that term. That's from a Christian author, Aaron Nyquist. But he talks about a lady that wants to do triathlon. And so she goes to these classes for like eight weeks at her gym and she doesn't get any better. Well, no one ever invited her onto the gym floor to actually train. And so we have all of these great organizations But a lot of times, if someone doesn't reach out to that veteran and say, hey, come Tuesday night at six o'clock to this, there's never that invitation to participate, no matter how many times we hear about these great organizations. And so I think that's put on the responsibility of people like me that are a veteran and have been there to find their buddies and say, hey, come on Tuesday with me and participate in this. Don't just hear about it on Facebook. That is, um, that resonates a lot. And I wonder, Jeff, how much that resonates with you. Uh, I didn't know your background until before the show when you and I were talking. And this was the thing I told everybody I had to keep my ammo dry on before we got to. But how does that strike you as somebody who thought you were going into the Navy and uh, almost making it through buds until stuff changed. Did you find that that was a hit to your identity? Did that change anything for you Uh, outside of the physical and outside of the administrative, obviously? Yes. I tied my, so imagine being 19 years old, right. And tying your entire identity to, Hey, I'm going to go be this frog man. Right. And I didn't have a backup plan. It was death or graduation. So I put everything into that and legitimately like a few weeks before finishing this program, catastrophe strikes, right? I end up getting dropped from training and medically discharged out of the Navy. 
And being a young guy and being physically broken, uh, mentally, uh, I still thought I was there, but got ripped out of this environment and sent back home. And then it's just like, crap, you feel like a complete failure, right? And you just like, every night you close your eyes, you, you're there and you're like, shoulda, woulda, coulda. That's like PTSD, right? So everyone always said, do you have PTSD? I was like, not from the army. <laughs> I was like, I don't have it from there. But when I was young, I did and absolutely did. Every single night I closed my eyes, I was back there reliving. Shoulda, woulda, coulda this. I wish I never said anything to the doctors, just a couple more weeks and ground it out. And I, I would have been fine. I wish I didn't take the pills or whatever it was. And, you know, I was like, I have to go finish this or I'm, I'm never going to live the rest of my life. I don't get this behind me and get driving on to the next uh, goal. And that's what I did. I made it, you know, my life's mission to do that. But coming back in, I said, I'll never tie my identity to this again. So I, I said, if I ever come to this point in the road again, where something like this happens, I'm going to have a backup plan. I'm going to keep helping people. I, I legitimately wrote it on my refrigerator. I said, you know, make your deal with God. If you allow me to get through this and get into this organization, I'll spend the rest of my life helping those that help me get there. And I followed through with that. That's what I did after I got through that program. And uh, the dreams went away, you know, the fear, the anxieties of your identity and your accomplishments, all that goes away. And I was like, I, I never have to worry about this again because I'm never going to tie my identity to one thing. And I, I made a deal with myself when I retire, I'm going to go do the same exact things I did before I came into the military, which was mountain biking, surfing, kayaking, and spending time with my family and friends and in being out in nature and living life. And that's what I do now. Most of the time I'm out mountain biking and getting other people into mountain biking, surfing, kayaking. And I spend every minute I have out in the woods, building trails and riding. So uh, I was able to do this after accomplishing everything I wanted to accomplish in the military to give myself the time before I got out of uniform to ramp down. And, you know, I don't have the Oh, I need to be on a helicopter flying into an objective. I don't have that anymore. I've, I've let it go. Uh, you see it once in a while. I'm like, man, that'd be fun to be there. But it's not waking up every day and saying that's who I need to be and that's what I need to be doing. So I, I love, you know, my life the way I've got it right now. I wouldn't change a thing. Can you talk a little bit about that that fallow period when you got out of the Navy and before you joined the army, how did you end up getting to the army? Just some of the granular <laughs> details, like how many years was that? And yeah. yeah, what was going on for you during that time? All right. So I, my last day in uniform in the Navy was November, 1998. And I, I packed all my things up. I said, I need to get out of Southern California. I'm going to end up in a dumpster and get back to Maine where my family and friends are and get back and work on my plan to get back in the military again. So I was an 80% tax-free vet at 21 years old, voc rehab, going to college, University of Southern Maine. I had my own small little ATM business. Uh, you know, I worked, you know, my buddy's surf shop. I worked construction and just went to school and surfed and mountain biked uh, and got myself physically better getting off all the pills the VA was trying to, the VA was trying to put me on, right? And, uh, and then I finally started getting able to exercise and run and do push-ups again. And I just went back out on the beach, started running and rucking and swimming again, doing everything. And I said, okay, I can, my worst day in the Navy, I could crush an army PT test. So I was like, I'm going back, right? So I, I didn't want to go in the army at first. I tried going back in the Navy and they laughed at me. Mind you, this is pre-September 11th. And they're like, you got wrecked the first time you went through this program. What makes you think you're going to get back through the second time at being an 80% disabled veteran? I was like, just give me a chance. And they were like, sorry, son. Like, if you still want to shoot people, go work for the post office. That was back in the 90s. They legitimately said that to me. And then, so I was like, okay, I'll go be a PJ, CCT. Went to the Air Force recruiter. They're like, nope, no prior service. And they always look at your medical records. And they're like, no way. So Army, they tried active duty, same thing. No prior service. Sorry, son. Go try the reserves of the Guard. And that's what I did. So I went to the reserve recruiter. And they were trying to put me back in. He is a friend of mine. He knew my story trying to go through the army. He's like, hey, man, I'll work with you. Try to do everything I can to help you. And I went up to MEPS like three or four times. And they finally said, hey, leave him up there. Don't take this kid home. So just P&G, right? Don't talk to this guy anymore. His career is never going to happen in the military. So I got left up at MEPS. And they told me, you're done. So I was like, okay, I got to find a ride home, right? So 
As I'm doing that, I asked one of the guys at the MEP station, I was like, who's the guy that has the magic wand that can sign this paperwork to get me back in the military? And they're like, oh, that's Colonel William Long down at USAREC in DC. I was like, hey, out of spite, you know, could you just give me his email? Like, you know, what do you got to lose? And he's like, yeah, sure, bud. Right. And so they gave me his email and I, I wrote the guy, I still have the letter in my office. I basically told him, I was like, look, I never wanted to get out of the Navy. I said, I was a few weeks away from being a Navy SEAL. I would, you know, I want to go back and do this. Give me any opportunity you have to get back in the door. And I'll prove myself. And this is right after September 11th. And I said, people are trying to get out of the military right now. I'm trying to go to war. So that's what I did. Yeah, I wrote him the letter and the next day I was in the military. He, all he responded back was, what map station are you processing out of? I was like, Portland, Maine. And I was back in the Army the next day. I had to go in the reserves um, and I went to a drill sergeant unit where the commander was a Green Brave in Vietnam, Colonel uh, Donald Greenwood, incredible guy. And I walk in, I'm an E2 with a dive bubble, and he looks at me and he's like, what the hell is your story, son? You know? And I'm like, you got time? And I explained my situation, what happened. He's like, all right. He's like, you want to be a Green Beret? I was like, absolutely. He's like, all right, I'll promote you any chance I get to get you up here. He's like, and then as soon as you're promotable, E4 promotable, I'll send you to selection. But he's like, I got to send you to drill sergeant school to get you promotable. I was like, whatever it takes. So that's what I did. Uh, I was in that unit. He promoted me E4. And then one day when I was at drill, uh, he asked me to come in his office. And he's like, hey, Darty, he's like, you ever heard of uh, SF babies? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, no. He's like, you don't have to go to regular army, do any of the regular army crap. He's like, you go to basic training, airborne, selection, you pass selection, you go straight to the Q course, you don't have to do anything else. I was like, sign me up. So he, that's what he did. Conditionally released out of the reserves, came in active duty May of 2003. And I went straight since, never stopped. Was that the 18 X-ray program? Or was it called that then? Or was that yes. like a precursor? It was. No, it was that. 18 X-ray. I was like the second class to go through as an 18 X-ray. Wow. Yep. Wow. So Meg, when you hear all that, <laughs> I'm sorry, I got to laugh because uh, Jeff, I mean, that's a lot of wickets to go through to get back in. And the first thing that comes to my mind, Mike, I want to bounce this off you. What, how much motivation does a veteran, in your experience, does a veteran need not to, to join the military, but to transition correctly when there's that many sunken costs. And obviously not everybody's story is Jeff's. That's an exceptionally hard path to go through just even to join, uh, much less stick around and make a career out of it. But talk a little bit about the mental toughness that veterans either need to acquire or in, innately have to successfully have a career and transition out successfully. So actually, as you mentioned when we were talking at the beginning, it varies a great deal, a great deal. I mean, even myself as a West Pointer, no two West Pointers are the same. No two female West Pointers are the same. No two female aviators, you know. And so I think it depends a lot on the individual. And as Jeff pointed out, what did he do when he got he got dropped. He went back home where he knew he was going to have support. And I think a lot of, well, and again, here I go stereotyping, saying a lot of veterans, you know, don't, maybe don't want to go back home. They want to try and stay near, you know, wherever they got out from. I don't have a clear answer on that. Everyone is going to be different. I think mm -hmm. veterans need to go and need to seek out wherever they're going to have that community, wherever they're going to have that support, because you can't transition alone. Mm. Is Interesting. A, that yeah. would be a big key point for me is that because part of your identity, whether you're like me and you didn't find your niche in the Army or you're like Jeff, but even Jeff realized that this can't be my identity can't be my role. They can't be one and the same. And so in order to do that, having that community, I would say, is a big part of it. Also, you know, I went through the old ACAP program and I couldn't believe even then and it's even expanded since then the amount of resources and opportunities that were offered. Now, my plan at the time 
was to get out and be a stay-at-home mom. My husband was still serving. It was getting to be too much to try and coordinate careers, let alone Mm -hmm. daycare was a nightmare. And at the same time, I kept coming home and I would call my mom, you know, who had gotten out in like 92 and be like, oh my gosh, you should see these job fairs they take us to. You should, I sat down and somebody practically wrote my resume for me. And at the same time, what I was hearing from, you know, other people in the army was grumblings about the ACAP program. And I was in disbelief of, are we talking about the same thing? Like, I feel like they're doing a pretty good job. Um, so that that would be my say is, one, using all the resources offered to you and then going where that individual vet is going to have a community of support. Yeah. Jeff, I mean, if I'm looking at a checklist of things to do as you separate or as you retire and ways of kind of getting yourself back to a new normal. Um, that seems like a pretty good starting place. I like what Meg said where you can't you can't do this alone. You have to get some support. Would you agree with that or is there something else that you see? 110%. So advocacy, right? Um, leverage your network. What we do, the program I created for the military, 24 months out, you start this glide path to retirement, right? And you don't do it alone. Everything you do in the military, you have a swim buddy, a dive buddy, a ranger buddy, whatever it is, you're supposed to never go in the room by yourself. Number one man, never by himself in the room. Why would you transition that way, right? So what I like to get the guys is an advocate, whether it's a peer advocate at the unit, uh, someone they trust, or a care coalition advocate if it's required and they qualify for it. But at the end of the day, you're going to do this as a team, as a group, as a unit, as a community, and you're going to help each other out to, we talk about zero gaps. So when we transition out, you're going to go, I call it the cradle to the grave and the grave to the cradle. Uh, coming in the organization, you transition from a, a civilian to a service member, service member to soft or a pilot, and then back to a civilian. And so each one of those transitions you do throughout your entire career, you have a network in place that helps you get from point A to point B, uh, point B to point C, right? So getting the advocacy there, and then having a system in place, we, I have an SOP for it, and it's a, it's a checklist. You go down as you're retiring to make sure you're doing all these things. And the biggest thing you need to know is what you don't want to do when you get out. And the other thing is, what's your family going to do with you when you get out? So it's a family decision. It's not just me getting out of the military. It's the entire family that has to move or get that new job or you know PCS or get a new house. You have to make that as a family unit, that decision as a family unit. So that's where we do the whole advocacy and mentorship with. So let me, one, one kind of theme I'm seeing crop up and I'll, Jeff, I'll bounce this back off you first. Um, talk a little bit about the difference. You obviously you're talking about, Hey, you always have a battle buddy. You always have a swim buddy. You're doing everything together and all that for those separating or sometimes retiring from the military. I think they're, might not always, but there might be that temptation to go look. Enough, um, I'm I'm done with the military. I don't. I I'm a square peg in a round hole. I want my individuality back. Um, is that a? Where do you stand on that tension between individuality and group identity? Um, how does one stra- how, how does one reconcile those two? When you're trying to transition, or even if you're not trying to transition, if you're in the military and you're and you're struggling with that, where's the, where's a healthy place to be in that tension? I was going to perfect example of this right now. As we're winding down Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, all these campaigns that were you know people were running into the recruiting office to go fight in combat, and all of a sudden the combat rotations stop, and all these young kids are coming in, and be like, wait a minute, I have to go sit in a tent yeah. in Africa for six months. And they're like, man, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm getting out. I want to go do something that fulfills me. And I, I'm, I can work to my, you know, my potential, not just be stagnant and spinning your wheels. So one of the things we're working on right now is helping people do that while they're in the military. There's, the military has hundreds of jobs and hundreds of opportunities for schooling, for education, green to gold, you know, your master's programs, whatever it is. Talking about leveraging your network and using your enablers there's tons of opportunity there. So the program, the transition program we have, it's not just for people retiring, it's people ETSing. 
And the goal there is to try to retain people two years out to get them to see the other options that they have so they can, oh, I want to change my MOS. I want to go be an officer. I want to go you know, work at this specialized unit. And they just don't know the options that are out there and they get stagnant and they're not being mentored the proper way. So we're working on that right now with talent management, right? I hate to even say it, but we're doing that now and it's yeah. it's working. A lot of people are like, man, I wish I knew about this information five years ago. I'd never gotten out or never medically mm-hmm. retired. So once we get this out there and we can see these people that they can actually work to their potential and we can manage talent and get them to a place where they're happy and have purpose, they're going to stay in uniform longer and they're going to perform better. Meg, what, what, what program would have made you stay in? <laughs> what, how, could the, how could the Army have, have, have uh, managed your talent better? Or at a certain point, does it just come down to the individual and you just go, look, I know me and I, I think we're done here? Okay, so I'm going to be real honest. I was a daddy's girl. Dad flew Blackhawks. So what did I do? I went to flight school and flew Blackhawks. Now, while I was there, my dad said, you know, sis, I really think you ought to look into fixed wing. I think that would be a better fit for you. So I did. And warrant officer after warrant officer told me, ma'am, um, you know, RLOs, real life officers, they don't fly fixed wing. And my dad kept telling me that's BS. I know, you know, so I did. I, I found it. I found my way there. And at the same time, as I mentioned before, I, as much as I loved it and it was the coolest job, I heard about this program called the Master Resiliency Training Program. It had just started out of UPenn. So there I was as a company XO. Hey, sir, I'd like to apply for this. Absolutely. Put in your packet. The battalion commander turns me down. No, you need to get more flight time. Okay, great. So months go by. Reapply. No, you need to deploy before you do that. Okay, great. (laughs) So I get my deployment. Come back. All right, let's try, you know, before I PCS, let's try this again. Because I kept reading the write-up for it and thought, oh, that would be awesome. I could be, use the skills that I learned playing sports and coach soldiers on this. No, got denied. No, you're months away from going to the career course. So sorry, ride your time out. So as a spouse, my husband, once we were in a position that we could handle it with our kids, that's what I did as a spouse. I finally got, you know, I sent my, we sent our kids to um, the grandparents' house and I went for two weeks And I, I mean, I cried tears of joy coming home that first day of like, Mike, I finally, this is putting words to what I've been coaching and teaching people all along. Had the army allowed me to do that? Holy, I mean, I would have absolutely, and I would have eaten it up and I would have taught you more than hunt the good stuff. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But, at, you know, but I was a young captain and needed to get my flight time. I needed to deploy. I needed to go to the career course. And after the career course, I was in the 82nd. And things were far too op-tempo to try and go then. And then it was after that point, the career and family stuff was too hard to coordinate. And so I finished up my time out at core. And then basically waited for the right time for our family for me to get that training. And so now I'm, you know, I'm really excited to have that training and be able to use it. Um, My husband's staff here will be probably the first classes I teach are the ROTC cadre, and they can pass it on to cadets and that sort of thing. But had the Army, you know, three-time no-go to try and get resiliency training. And now here we are a decade later in a mental health crisis, and you could have had someone highly motivated for those eight years um, to be able to teach those classes. So let's talk about one of the things that does plague a lot of people, both in the service and leading to them separating the service, um, which is that toxic leadership you know, trope that we hear so much about and not without cause. I mean, there certainly is, uh, I'm sure we all have war stories about leaders that were less than ideal. Sometimes it's the system. Sometimes it's just the army's not set up to be as flexible and catered individual needs as we'd like, but sometimes it is actually the individuals above us that, that shoot us down as well. Jeff, 
how does that square with an individual's innate responsibility for their own health that we want people that um, are looking out for their own best interests that are and, and and when it comes to their own health, I mean um, that they they un, they take ownership of it. They're not relying on their chain of command to brush their teeth. I mean they they understand that they there's a degree of big boyism that has to take over. That they have to be able to put on their own pants. They have to be able to take care of themselves mentally, physically, spiritually. Um, but yet sometimes in the military setting, those decisions can be handcuffed by your leadership or just by the system itself. How do you square that divide? How do we figure that out? Um, first, I'm going to start off with hierarchical stress, unmanageable stress, helpless, hopeless, worst form of stress you can endure as a human being, right? So we'll start with that with toxic leadership. Uh, one, being aware of it. And then two, talking about work-life balance, right? So what we don't want to do is everything you always hear mission first, mission first, mission focused. You do not want to put yourself up the ladder and drag everybody down to accomplish the mission, you're not going to have anyone following you after a certain amount of time. So you have to balance that as a leader and look at, can I still accomplish the mission without running my guys into the ground and then watching the wheels fall off of them and then just think you're going to replace them when they break? Thank God in our organization, we've identified that and we're going away from that. Um, the priority now is on people, finally, but accomplishing the mission, not at the cost of all the people. And now we're teaching people how to identify these things in their environment, all the things in their environment, to include traumatic brain injury, stress, toxic exposures, trauma, infectious diseases, all these things, right? Those are the effects of your operational environment. And we're giving them the tools to mitigate these factors and to give them the enablers within our human performance and wellness programs so they can use these things like PMCS, right? Preventative Maintenance Checks and Services. And we've done it in a way it's kind of just like the Army two-level maintenance system, individual field level, and then level 20, which is your unit depot level maintenance. The individual repairs and maintains themselves by understanding the things in their environment, controlling their controllables, stress, relationships, exercise, recovery, all those things, sleep, relaxation. And then when they're not able to do those things and they're trying to move the needle back in the green and it's not working... They go to the unit level where we give them the full PMCS workup. Um, going back on your point where that, uh, looking at the leadership aspect, everybody gets it now. And that's why we focused using Army processes and systems to get them to, hey, you always talk about humans are more important than hardware. Okay, where are all your checks and services for your humans? And they look at you funny they're like, oh, my God. And I said, okay, the first soft truth, right? I mean, the first soft imperative is understand the operational environment. And when you look at the operational environment, what do people really understand about the health effects of their operational environment? Now, they know IEDs, they know bombs, they know ambushes, but they don't know about carcinogens, they don't know about chronic stress, they don't know about sleep disorders, they don't know about infectious diseases or chronic inflammation and all those things. And think about this, we put so much emphasis in training and on equipment, and then you know we force our people to learn all this information about the stuff they're utilizing on a daily basis, especially a helicopter. And then that's why flight physicals are the most stringent. It's not about the pilot. It's about the piece of equipment they're operating. And then you look at it and you're like, holy God, we're not putting that much effort on our people. It's all hardware and training. And it, without this vessel we have called the body and the mind, none of that training or equipment is worth a damn. So we have to teach people how to preserve this. We can't go to the motor pool and DX this. And we're not replacing faster than we're gaining right now. So we have to preserve what we have. So leadership is understanding this. And they say, okay, we need to give our guys the tools to keep them healthy and keep them in the fight longer, right? Our, our focus is obviously lethality. That's number one, right? Readiness and prolong your service life and your quality of life. We can do all that while serving and accomplishing the mission. We don't have to sacrifice our guys and gals. Sorry about that. Uh, in, in this fight, you know, needlessly, we're beyond this. This is not World War II anymore. We can't attrit. So systems that are being placed, leadership understands this. It's taking individual responsibility for yourself, your unit, and your mission. And then once people understand that, that everything else falls in place. Yeah, I um yeah, I mean I think that all makes a ton of sense 
And then I look at Fort Hood and I go, dear Lord, why isn't that seem to be trickling down there? And I'm sorry, we, we did a thing a couple of weeks ago on the show where we ragged on Fort Hood for a good five or 10 minutes. But, uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. The framework may very well exist um, to deal with this. I, I guess at a certain point, it seems to me there's no accounting for humans. Uh, ultimately, the military is a personality-based business in so many respects. And when you're talking about leadership, I, you know, it, it, there's almost no system that can strain out chronic assholia. And there's <laughs> at some point you're just going to run into something, um, and 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 have to try to navigate the personality minefields that that just exist in any corporation in any uh, corporate body, right, Meg? Right, and I would just add that the leaders need to lead by example. So if you're bringing in, you know, preventive medicine to talk about it, you need to be in the room listening and following what they say and doing the right thing in front of the guys, not behind closed doors. Or, you know, we talk, I big focus on mental wellness and the mind aspect of it as well as the spiritual of you can talk in the military openly about your spiritual and faith practices without evangelizing and getting yourself in trouble. And it's not, I would say it's, you know, not just optional. It would be recommended at this point that, hey, leaders, step up. You've done this now for 16, 18 years. These 18-year-olds need to know how to do that healthfully within their own set of intentional living and their own set of values, but they need to see some examples of that. They need to not just hear that you, you know, people first and value family. They need to know, hey guys, Friday, I'm cutting out at four o'clock to make my son's football game. Don't bring me anything after 1500 because I'm leaving and I suggest you all do the same. And especially as we wind down overseas and God willing, things do get back to a, a how do I want to say this, more routine calendar that we can build that kind of stuff back into the schedule and soldiers can start seeing their leaders lead from the front and taking care of themselves and not taking no-dos to try and pull all-nighters and flip schedules and all that kind of stuff. But saying, you know, hey, let's have the nutritionist come in and then let's all have a meal together and practice this stuff together. Yeah, Meg, so let me follow up on that. So maybe, um, obviously, we're, we're coming up on the hour, um, but I and there's so many problems we haven't even come close to, I haven't even come close to mentioning. But Maybe just as a handy kind of quick reference uh, uh, guide that we could throw out here, what are some of the pillars of things not to do, uh, both from a leadership perspective and as the individual that needs, whether it's mind, body, or spiritual care, um, what, are, what are just some, some good rules of thumb of what not to do? So I will um, take a little bit of lead on this as I just read an article uh, about, I think it was specific to women, if I remember correctly, but uh, body image and meeting height weight standards and the tape test and that sort of stuff. As a former cross country runner that developed mild, mild uh, anorexia because of that and because of the environment I was in, that would be something of what not to do is try and fit whatever, you know, whether it's anorexia or, you know, beefing up, whatever the case may be, but of your body as an individual. And don't always take the advice of what your buddy is doing. But as you mentioned before, that self-responsibility and educate yourself. It is your mind, your body, and your soul and you need to know what your values are and how to treat your mind, body, and soul 
to be the best that, you know, the old army, be the best you can be, right? (laughs) Um, I see far too much in my world of coaching of this diet, that diet, throw it all out. Uh, I read at one point of something called being a flexitarian, right? (laughs) So we all know what general good nutrition looks like. We know what good sleep is. Well, be flexible and find what works for you. But don't just do it blindly because your buddy did it or because you read about it online. If you feel like crap doing it or your performance is starting to fail because of it, stop doing it and be creative and find something that's actually going to work. Yeah. And I think if I had to sum up a lot of the unhealthy stuff that I think we've been discussing, it seems like they're products of what I'm just going to coin a one size fits all ism that anytime we're trying to make everything uniformly conform to uh, a standard, even if it's not an arbitrary standard, um, there's going to be a rub, there's going to be a tension and people um, are going to do things that may not be right for them. Um, if they're right for anybody at all. And I want to segue that, Jeff, to you, because you and I were talking before the show about uh, pills. And as the army gets more diverse in the resources that it offers to uh, service members and to veterans through the VA, um, is there a place for holistic medicine or holistic approaches, not even uh, necessarily to cure a physical problem or a purely mental problem, but just uh, more holistic approaches that the civilian world um, may offer. Uh, And I know the Army and and the DOD writ large has to do a lot of due diligence. I know everything needs to be peer-reviewed and what have you. But is there a place for something like that where people can start to pick and choose what works for them better than just being given a one-size-fits-all uh, medical or, or uh, solution to, to whatever is ailing them. Uh, I'm actually glad you said this, right? So the DOD and the VA are doing it. So the VA has what's called Whole Health Initiative. Go look it up, right? It's holistic medicine, nutrition, lifestyle, performance medicine-based. And then the Army has what's called Total Force Fitness and H2F, holistic health and fitness. Uh, those programs are going into that, what you talked about, the holistic mind, body, spirit, uh, relationship, family, all those cognitive, we're looking how to do that through controlling your controllables, making better decisions. Uh, if you can look at food as everything you're putting in your body is either fighting disease or fueling it, or it's either enabling performance or uh, degrading performance, right? If you can look at everything that way, it's pretty simple. And do, do I want to be a better version of myself or do I want to keep poisoning myself with alcohol and tobacco and prescription drugs? I went down that road, not much with the self-medication, but with the pharmaceuticals and the military I told you about that. And I did not get better. Um, absolutely not. There's a time and a place for all those things. Like I said, that's emergency acute medicine. And those things are lifesavers, but you can't use it as your crutch or your pillar to say, I'm going to offset my horrible lifestyle with exercise and prescription drugs, right? The bro science. Um, no. Yeah, I'm telling you right now, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you think you can get away with that. As you get older, you're going to start hitting that wall. It's not if, but when. And if you make better decisions at a younger age, your quality of life when you get older is going to be significantly better. And your performance is going to be better, whether it's on a team or flying an aircraft or just being a family member. uh, You're going to have that quality of life to do all those things you love doing. So I would leave it with that. But there are systems, systems in place. Uh, in the civilian sector, we're going this way. I don't see anybody now going, oh, give me prescription drugs. I want, you know, I YOLO, right? They're not going that direction. Everyone's more self-conscious, more self-aware now. They're more about being connected with nature, being outside, putting better things in their body, eating organic or managing stress, doing yoga, mind body things. We're going the right direction, but you cannot offset a horrible lifestyle with pharmaceuticals. I'll leave it at that. You, you know, one thing I really wish they would do, this is just my own personal gripe, I really wish downrange they would have chiropractors. I know they can't get them to every fob, but even just have somebody circulating through the outstations, I, I was like, why are we not contracting more chiropractors? Um, that's just my personal gripe. Um, pick that apart if, if you see. Uh, I, was, 
I was going to say we have a couple at Fort Bragg now. We do have them. Yeah. At two of the clinics. But but do they push out? I've never seen one pushed out. I've never seen one pushed out downrange. Not a chiropractor, but we send our HPW or human performance and wellness team. We send our providers, our physical therapists uh, downrange to take care of people. So we do that operationally. I don't know how it is at the other units, but speaking from my unit. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I know in Africa, I had a Navy physical therapist, I think that had set up shop in Djibouti. And that was the only one I'd ever seen. And, and, uh, I saw him about three days before I went back anyway. So it was too little, too late. That's my own personal gripe, <laughs> but good. I'm glad third group's taking care of it. I mean, it, and, it, and I will say, Jeff, just based off what you're saying, I mean, I, I gotta say, it sounds like you have so many answers coming right out of a holster, um, that I do, do think speaks to what you're doing at third group. Um, I hope others across the force, especially outside of soft are doing similar things. And, um, even if the framework is there, I hope they're actually executing it to that standard. And I hope what you're doing has second and third order effects that, that do start to, uh, let's say infect the rest of, of the force, especially conventionally. Yeah. It's going that direction. And like Meg was saying earlier, it's hope. Uh, they're out there. They're, every unit's getting H2F representatives coming to the unit to set up all these things. And uh, just get out there, find out who they are if you're listening and you're an active duty service member. Find out where your H2F staff are and how to connect with them and start utilizing those resources now. And same thing That's with great. the VA, Whole yeah. Health Initiative. That That is a holistic-based medical care program for the VA that people can utilize time now. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. So if you're listening and want to follow up on that, uh, I mean, Jeff is just throwing out one linkable thing after another. Um, and, and that's great because this is, this should be a link heavy episode. Speaking of links, Meg, tell us about riveting mission LLC. Absolutely. So I got out of the army and I, as I said, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I took a year off as my aunt instructed me and focused on learning to be a full-time wife and mom. And for, any of you that have made that transition, you know what I'm talking about because you are used to having daycare. And all of a sudden it was 10 a.m. and I was calling our old daycare provider saying, what am I supposed to do with these kids the rest of the day? So I got into fitness coaching and I loved, I still do it and I love it. I became a certified personal trainer, but I did, as I mentioned, I loved the mind-body Uh, connection part of resiliency. So riveting mission. I am on a mission to create a bunch of Rosie the Riveters. So you think of that, of the uh, feminine strength of taking care of the home front, taking care of yourself, and being fit to serve others. So being fit to serve your community. So I do resiliency coaching, fitness coaching. Uh, I lead a small Bible study group as well. And I am happy to do, I've talked to locally doing some uh, team building and culture creation for small businesses because I have found that is something in the civilian world that is a little bit of a missing link that we assume and we already know is there in an army that, hey, you're going to the Rangers, you learn about the culture from day one, right? You're in the 82nd, you immediately drink that Red Beret Kool-Aid. And small businesses don't always have that. Maybe the leader does, uh, but doesn't know how to create it in their small business. So that's something I'm moving into with Riveting Mission. And I am happy to help in any way I can, whether people are looking to get into coaching or do need some sort of personal life coach. Here shortly, I will actually be starting a master's degree in developmental psychology. So to go even deeper, um, and I'm going through a Christian university, so to go even deeper into that mind-spirit connection. And Meg, where can they find, where can people find Riveting Mission? On Facebook, Riveting Mission LLC, and also on Instagram. And then you can always just email me on Gmail, riveting.mission at Gmail. Awesome. Jeff, tell us about Task Force Dagger. All right. Task Force Dagger Special Operations Foundation. Founded in 2009, it was an organization to fill the gaps. Back when uh, the military didn't have all these advocacy programs and TBI programs. Started by a couple guys from 5th Group. And it started out as only Army Special Operations at first. And then a few years ago, 
we're like, this is way bigger than an army problem, right? Even though we had the most casualties in the war in army special operations, our brothers and sisters and all the other branches were going through the same thing. So we opened it up. It's a family-based program to help wounded, ill, and injured service members and their families uh, get all the care they need, right? We have the immediate needs program, takes care of what you think it does, like all the other programs do, helping family members get to wounded, ill, or injured service members overseas or here, helping people to get chemo uh, treatments that are 90 miles out from their home station, uh, helmets for kids with developmental issues. And then we have the Soft Health Initiative Program, which I started back in 2012, which takes care of all the health needs, the mind, body, spirit, and family type stuff using performance lifestyle-based functional medicine operating system programs uh, like Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, Doc Dave LeMay Regenesis Program, uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, we work with Mount Sinai Research Hospital for KXRF bone lead testing. Uh, we're partnering up with Boot Campaign, another TBI program that's in Texas, Warrior's Heart for Addiction, Dr. Carrie Elk for you know processing trauma. We have a giant network of people. All we do is we don't provide the medical care, we provide connection to and awareness of. And then the third program is the recreation adaptive events. Uh, that's our sports programs. And it's family-based as well, getting people, finding their new mission, purpose, and focus, getting them off the couch, back out in nature, doing things that provide that same mission, purpose, and focus and identity, and doing it in the community, right? Insulating, not isolating. So those are the three programs. You can find us online, www.taskforcedagger.org. Uh, and then same thing on Instagram. And then I have the Soft Health Initiatives uh, Instagram page, which is soft underscore health underscore initiative on Instagram. And then LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. But we're here to help everybody, not just special operations folks. All the problems that we're seeing in the military are obviously happening in the civilian sector. I've got two brothers that are firemen. Uh, I got a lot of friends that are police officers. They're going through the same things with the cancers and the suicides and the family problems and the addiction issues. Uh, this is a community problem in the world, not just a military problem. So I'm here to help everybody, but under the, the guise of my mission in the, in the foundation, we're chartered for special operations and support. Are you going to keep doing this when you get out, Jeff? Yes. So <laughs> I actually thought I was going to be out a lot sooner. I'm at 20 years in September, but when I get out, this was my retirement plan to do all of this, but I was given the opportunity to do it all while I was in uniform. That was my dream to do. So I'm going to do this for a few more years, go past 20 while my daughter's still in school. And then when I get out, I'll spend the rest of my life advocating for and helping our community. That's great. Well, links will be in the show notes. So to all those interested, and uh, especially if you know somebody, if it's not you, but you can think of somebody who might benefit from this, um, go down, check the show notes. We'll have everything linked to there. Jeff, Meg, thank you guys for being here. Thank you. We appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. This was great. To everyone else, subscribe if you haven't already. If you're on iTunes, five-star reviews would be great. With the five-star review, put whatever comments you want. I welcome constructive criticism, welcome all kinds of feedback. You can say whatever you want, but as long as you attach it to a five-star review, it's all worth it. Um, so that would help us out a lot because the metrics do matter. For the show notes, so I've referenced them a bunch. Obviously, this is going to be a very link-heavy episode you're going to want to check out the show notes. They will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Or they'll be in the accompanying article that I write every week for the episode. So you can go check that out at Havoc Journal, and you'll see in this particular episode, it'll be, um, what was the subject this week? (laughs) How should vets maintain their mind, body, and spirit? Can't remember how I phrase this sometimes. Anyway, you'll see that article. Um, and you can look through there. You'll see the show notes there. Or the easiest option, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, just scroll down and you'll see the show notes with all the links that are live there. And you'll be able to click on them and they'll take them right to everything we were just talking about. I will also, um, next to the show notes, I'll also have alibis for anything I misstated uh, because I have a bad habit of waking up at two in the morning and going, why the hell did I say this like that? Or, oh, I forgot to mention this, or I should have contextualized that by saying this. So then I write alibis uh, to cover my own ass after the fact. That, of course, is also open and eligible for our guests, although generally nobody takes me up on that because I'm the only one that tends to brain fart to the degree that I need to actually 
write something and rectify it. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Meg Kelvington and Jeff Dardia. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Uh, Meg, just for the record, uh, you yes. like had perfect time. Like your 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 segments that you talked were like the perfect filibuster length to cover my dog's barking. And like the second the dog stopped, you stopped, and I could come back on. I was like, "How is she doing that?" That happened like three times. I was like, "Man, she like perfectly timed this out." I don't know what it was, but spiritual fitness. Didn't you listen? Spiritual fitness. Yeah, you're, you're yeah, just wired. Right? Yeah. Right. And I didn't hear anything on your end. I didn't hear any dogs. Oh or well, like good that. because um, I'm in our closet to make sure that the sound um, is good. And um, the dog, I mean, it's the size of a walk-in closet, but the dog came in, so he's actually sitting right, because there was a thunderstorm, so he busted his way in here and is next to me now. If only I'd known that, I could have made it an in-the-closet joke during that, <laughs> uh, that episode. I've fallen, missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs>